Welcome to the Home Lab Show, episode 118, Backup Strategies. How you doing, Jay? Doing awesome. How are you? I'm doing great. You know, people over wonder what happens when we're a couple minutes late. Sometimes it's technical difficulties. Sometimes me and Jay literally discuss how we're going to look at each other over a podcast. And <laughs> we were like, yeah, like, what camera do we want? Which like, camera uh, angle do we uh, want? <laughs> yeah, I have two now. So it's like, and then I have to remember to look at the right camera now in the, in the studio because I've recorded segments where I'm looking at the wrong camera while I'm talking. And I'm like, okay, I got to re-record that again. Yeah, so kind of fun. Yeah, let's so we're diving into the topic of uh backups because they're important, they should be done at the frequency that you are risk tolerant for. And uh, there's a lot of nuances, and we'll talk about some of the places to back up and some ideas around it. The first thing you want to do is catch up on a few things standardization on standard notes. So, you, you found a winner, I did. Yeah, after all this time, um, the runner up was Obsidian, but um, standard or standard notes won. It's open source. So that's automatically going to put it at a higher um, rank for me. Nothing against Obsidian. It, it's, but they're, they're kind of different, right? Because yeah. it's a note taking app. Obsidian is more, you know, you have a directory, you have markdown files in there and that's fine. But standard notes is more like, um, I don't want to say it's like Evernote, but it's more like Joplin, but a little simpler. And I like the simplicity of it and it works really well. I was kind of surprised that it took me this long to find it after all the node apps that came up and as good as this one is, it's just, it's like, okay, well this could have came up sooner, but I tried everything else, but I suppose, <laughs> I mean, I'm now I know about node apps, but standard notes is hundred percent open source. It has um, cha-cha 20 encryption. So we were, yes, we are laughing about cha-cha 20. <laughs> cha-cha, yeah. That, that's, that's such a funny name. I, I was wondering if I could say that the straight face. But 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 in, in all seriousness, it's encrypted, which is important to a lot of people, as it should be. So it's open source. It's encrypted. It, it's easy to use. I, I guess I can't ask for more than that. So it, it, it is more like the Joplin style. More more than the Obsidian style. I like the Joplin style better, but that's just a preference for individuals, I guess. Yeah. And and for myself, um, and this is the for those of you that are new, me and Jay have had this debate on numerous episodes of what is the best tool to use for keeping yep. all the notes we do on all the technology. The one thing we have in common is we really like Markdown. We like simplicity. We love open source. Uh, outside of that, we, me and Jay don't even agree on which note apps to use, but maybe none of you do either. Um, so I think yours is more of a journaling up. app than a note app, though. So I, I think I would, technically it's, it's like a different workflow, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm using law. Logseq, I think that's how it said. L O G S E Q. I love it. I'm thrilled with it. Uh, I've been using it now for long enough that I've got over a month's worth of daily journals in there. So yes, it's definitely uh, a more of a journal style. It is a different workflow. It is a journal that has notes versus a note app, but it's fine. It works for my workflow. I might do a video on it if there's enough demand. Leave that in the comments and say uh, if me and Jay should do videos on our respective channels about that as a topic. Uh, we definitely don't mind yeah. sharing it. I don't feel as though I'm an expert. There's actually a lot of good. There's actually some good LogSeek channels that I've been learning from myself, but at least maybe I can direct people as to here's the tool and here's the channels that I learned from. Maybe that's helpful. <laughs> if we're a bit of background in case someone's new to the podcast, I was using Joplin for a while and Joplin is basically my favorite functionally, but the, the number of bugs was just so egregious that I couldn't even believe that it's released as a stable product. I mean, it has one job, you know, take your notes, you, you write notes, it saves notes. I mean, simple, right? But even that, um that that's a problem notes getting lost they're they're not syncing properly 
formatting is lost after you save the notes, which doesn't make sense. You have syncing where it's not quite the same on both ends where you have to keep micro. I mean, there's just so many problems with it, which is a shame because functionally it's amazing. But at first I was pretty forgiving as I normally am. Okay, I'll just wait for an update or something. They'll probably fix it. But after update, after update, after update, and nothing's getting fixed, I'm like, well, I just can't use something I can't rely on. So that started the whole um, spiel about finding a node app. Uh, I think we were both looking for a node app at the same time. Yes. We landed on different solutions, but I think the reason we started our our look at alternatives was probably very similar. And I think the reason you you took a long time to find standard notes is because if you Google standard notes, you may not land where you expect. So I put a link oh. in the show notes because think about it. It's called standard notes. Okay. What notes did you standardize on Jay? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Cause I mean, it's sometimes people, yeah, it's like the discoverability of things is very important. And I, I, I make this joke often it's true and it's, it's not really a joke, but it's funny. The band churches is famous for, replacing the U in the band name with a V. And when they're asked, why did you do that? And they're like, well, when you Google churches, you're not going to find us. But if we change the U to a V, you'll find us then. And I'm yeah. like, yeah, that's pretty <laughs> clever. Because standard notes is, you know, to your point, it, it, I guess it, it would be kind of hard to find. And that does explain why it's such a basic name. Maybe they should rename it with something catchy to try to get and, more um, traction. And I'm going to say, LogSeek is easy to find. But you have no idea LogSeq was a journaling or note-taking app. You're thinking, oh, it's going to be some type of log indexing tool, right? I'm going to be able to seek out my logs. That is the first thing that came to mind when people started talking about it. I'm like, I already did a video on Graylog. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, and you might somebody might search for that, uh, you know, seek S-E-E-K and not come up right. with it. Right, not S-E-Q. So sometimes I feel like it's weird when you have like really great applications, but the name just either isn't obvious or it's too obvious or something like that. And it becomes hard for the product to gain traction just on account of that before you get to its functionality. So um, it, I guess it's just a Google problem. It, well, it, it, it's even worse than that because uh, the tech, the tech industry is littered with things. We're going to come up with a new curving language. What are you going to call it? Rust. Oh, I'm going to Google rust. Great. What is the other one we're going to use? Go. Oh, I'm going to look for go. Like Geo? <laughs> Just... Well, they had a very effective strategy for making those names famous, though. I mean, they they started a debate that ended up as a holy war. Okay, I'm joking about that part. But but seriously, there's so much debate around programming languages. I, I swear you could call a programming language cat, and it would probably get traction. So yeah, because we debate about these things so much, and, and everyone has an opinion, rightfully so, because opinions are awesome, <laughs> just like open source. But when you have people aggressively expressing their opinion, like Rust being in the Linux kernel that was in the news, it's kind of hard to not be famous at this point. But um, we're trying to get people to realize, they're, especially Windows users, there's life beyond Notepad++. Right. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> now, a phrase that I always liked that my dentist told me as a kid is, you don't have to brush all your teeth, just the ones you want to keep. And I'll lead that into our backup discussion, because what should I back up? Not all your data, just the data that you care about. <laughs> and so it's a, it's one of those things you don't realize what you've lost until it's gone. So you should really think about the whole ecosystem of what you back up. And what I mentioned before is your risk tolerance for backing it up. Uh, for example, dovetailing off the notes talk here, all my notes are tied together with sync thing because the moment I save a note, I actually would like it 
backed up. I don't want it backed up tonight, later, right. at some scheduled time. Uh, some things are, to me, best done with real time. And you can say sync things on a backup, but there is versioning in it. Therefore, yes, even if you, someone gets a hold of and destroys it. And even sync thing has a backup strategy. So where should we start in this? The three, two, one backup strategy? Yeah, we could get into that in a moment. I just wanted to, to mention some of the problems here because, you know, it's backing up is not easy. We we think it is, and it can be easy. We could simplify it down to throw everything on a flash drive. As long as you remember to do it, you never forget to do it. And you have like multiple flash drives and you keep one off site. But we'll get into that backup strategy in a moment. Uh, some of the questions that could come up with the home lab is what to back up. Now, an easy answer is back up everything, but you might not care about everything, right? So maybe since you're not a business, you don't have data retention laws. So it's not like you have to keep your logs for a certain amount of time. So then you might be thinking, well, I'll just keep a week's worth of logs. Can I, uh, and you're not going to, you're probably not going to back up logs, but it's still data retention. But if you think about, you know, videos like your Plex movies, for example, you could have terabytes of movies and you obviously don't want to lose that, but you could argue you could get those back. The movies that you have on your server you don't have the only copy of those movies, let's be honest. I mean, let, you can even rip your own copy again if you have to. You could reproduce those files, but there's other files like family photos and things like that you can't reproduce. So those might be more important, but, but you might argue, I don't want to lose my Plex movies. It took me forever to rip all of those. But then when you back them up to the cloud and, you know, in my case, you have like my image looking garbled on the live version because I have so many cloud syncs running and backing up that I can't even get the camera across the wire. But, you know, and then your bill goes up because you're backing up Plex movies. So then you're you're tasked with, do I just not back them up, save the money and worst case scenario, I have to re-rip them? Or is the amount of work you spent ripping the movie like so egregious that you just can't bear to do it again? And you have these types of things to figure out and I think that's an important mindset to be in when we start talking about this, because, yeah, I'd like to tell you to back up everything. The first thing is to back up the things that you can't get back, that there's no way to reproduce. Like I produce a YouTube video. I'm going to back up the master copy because I could reproduce it again by repeating everything I say, redoing the B-roll and spending a bunch of work on it. But I want to keep that backed up. But have that mindset as far as like what you can easily recreate, re-rip or reproduce and what you just can't get back. And family movies and photos are easily a first consideration here because a lot of us have that kind of thing. Even if you just have pictures of your cat and you're by yourself, I mean, those pictures are still important. So you want to back them up. So with that in mind, we can start talking about the backup strategies. But as we do, just think about the things that are important and the things that you can't be without. Yeah, there is a cost to it. Even if you're just creating multiple copies on site or maybe storing one off site, when you start looking at if you have a large Plex library of things, uh, you ripped an entire DVD collection. Granted, you know, going through and re-ripping all of those DVDs that I have tons of that I bought. That was a big movie collector for a while. That is still... I'm not willing to spend too much money on buying a lot of hard drives to have an extra copy of it. It's like, look, it's on a RAID array right now. And I, I'm the first one to say RAID's on a backup. And I do have extra copies here. I just don't keep one extra copy off site of that right now. That's been my limit. I keep two copies on site off two separate NAS boxes. That is where my risk tolerance is for my Plex movies. <laughs> yep. And another thing to keep in mind, too, as we talk about this, is to encrypt or not encrypt. Now, 
an answer here could be encrypt everything, right? But but maybe not. For example, I keep pretty much everything I download, whether it's you know an application installer or an or an ISO image. Um, these are things that you could freely download online. There's nothing specific to me here. If you have if you download Ubuntu 2204 an ISO image, the one you have is the same as the one I have. And if I lose it, I can go get it. So yeah. I'm not going to encrypt my data set that's full of, you know, generally available files that anybody has access to. That's just a waste of CPU resources in my mind. But if there's any personally identifiable information, then yeah, you should be encrypting it. Yeah, I don't encrypt my YouTube videos either. Uh, yeah, for same. all the same reason, you know, I have a lot of storage dedicated to years of being on YouTube and creating content. And because that content is actually available outside of the, you know, I don't obviously not 100% of the B-roll goes into the video. So if someone were ever to somehow get access to it and exfiltrate those, which I would probably notice just because the bandwidth, I was like, hey, why is everything going slow? But if you would just get a bunch of extra B-roll, maybe um, a video of me picking my nose that wasn't publicly available, but, you know, I'm willing to risk it. <laughs> or the F-bombs I say in between uh, different scenes with yeah. things don't work out well. <laughs> um, it's pretty funny the things that that don't get uploaded, but yeah. you know, in that case, yeah, you might may not want to encrypt those because you can watch them for free on YouTube anyway. The only risk might be somebody uploading those videos. But I think the the funny thing about this is you have enterprise companies that are in the news because they didn't notice that a large amount of data right. was exfiltrated. But the but people in, in the home lab will, will always notice that. Like, I'm, I'm sure of this. Like, the minute that your significant other is complaining about Plex being slow, you're immediately going to find that there's a bunch of things being, you know, ripped out of your, um, yeah. being ripped out of your data center there. So, or you publicly if, shared your Plex with too many of your friends and now you don't have any bandwidth left. <laughs> or you get a, like, a cease and desist letter from your ISP or something. So we generally yeah. know about these things pretty easily. So I don't really think we have to talk too much about that. But the three, two, one backup strategy is probably the last or one of the last. I have a couple more um, foundational bullet points to get through before we get to the main topic. So three, two, one. Um, I, I got that from the Twit Network. That's the first place I heard it. I don't. It's been around for a minute. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if they um, coined the term. I mean, Leo Laporte, for example, has been around for ages in the industry. So it's he's hard to say. You know, invented. I don't know if he's yeah, like him there. and Steve Gibson, because I, I think <laughs> Steve Gibson was the one that coined spyware for the first time, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah, I, I believe so. <laughs> so the three, two, one backup strategy came from somewhere, but that's just where I heard of it first. So it's basically three copies of everything on at least two different forms of media, one of which should be off site. So um, I'm surprised I didn't have to rehearse that whole spiel, but that's basically what it means. So uh, to break that down, you don't want just one copy of anything. That That's a risk, you know, of and by itself. So three copies of everything that's important, you know, two different backup media could be an external hard drive, um, you know, a NAS or whatever you have. And then one of one of those things should be offsite. So you should always have the offsite backup in case, you know, you get a flood or something that, you know, just hoses everything. And one time I came close to this. So you think it you you think it won't happen to you, right? But I at one point had water drain over my server rack for my home lab, like a lot of water. And this was years ago, like when some ice was melting outside, it seeped inside and then drained right over top of my servers. Thankfully, I just had something sitting on top of the rack that doesn't belong there that was just dispersing the water around the server rack. And I was this close to having like everything 
um, oh, actually, it was the cable modem. The cable modem saturated all the water and caused it to spread over. So I lost the cable modem. And thankfully, I didn't lose my data. But if I did, you know, I would have wished I followed the 3-2-1 backup strategy. You never know when something could happen, a crazy the, lightning strike or something. Right. And on topic of off-site backups, so ideally, it you know, you can back up at a friend's house or something like that. That's actually kind of a cool. I thought about talking about that as a project, but it's pretty simple. There's different tools you can use with TrueNAS and even TailScale. I've actually done a video on how to set up TrueNAS and TailScale where this doesn't doesn't need any VPN set up outside of Tailscale where you can have two TrueNAS servers talking to each other, one of them remote. You can pair them locally so they get everything done fast and then do the incremental changes and take it off site. I may dive deeper into it as a topic, maybe because uh, Jay moved a little bit closer to me. Me and Jay will set up a reciprocal thing where we can back up each other's data. <laughs> um, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. So, you know, we, that we have offsite copies. But the reality is, if you don't have a friend's house, you can put it at. And you maybe don't want to spend the money to put it in your own private data center that you have in your back pocket. You may go, what about places like Backblaze? And those are actually some really good solutions. If you're using Synology, Synology has their C2 cloud, Backblaze has their system. And I say this because we have come a long way and we don't worry as much about these cloud vendors like we used to because we have the ability to encrypt before send. Now with this wonderful encryption you have prior to sending please 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 make sure you have backed up thoroughly i don't care if you've printed it out on paper whatever you use for that encryption password because think about how you recover from a loss because this has absolutely happened where people have lost the nas and realized oh the only copy of the password i created a great password and i saved it in that nas to upload that data and the only way to get that data back it'll come back from the cloud they will hold encrypted data for you and they'll give it back to you but there's no way to decipher it without that password but because you're encrypting prior to sending there's not a worry of these cloud providers because, well, security is hard and eventually mistakes may be made and that risk is there. They may get these encrypted blobs. There, yep. uh, any threat actor's ability to break this encryption is completely dependent on how good of a password you use. So, hey, it's easy uh, to be able to do this. It's easy to be able to do um encrypted backup. So it, it kind of removes that ability or, or problem you have where I don't know if I trust these cloud providers. I've been using Backblaze for years just because they've been around a while. To me, I feel like I'm supporting two things. One, they're affordable and reasonably priced. Two, uh, as long as Backblaze exists as a company and they keep doing this, I love their drive reports. They give you a really cool history. Oh, yeah. I like the transparency Backblaze has about things. And their commitment to open source has been good. I think they've been, they've been committed to giving back. To me, that's like, it's kind of a win-win. It's a company that actually is doing something that I need, backing up data, making it affordable, and then actually giving me some information back about you know what, what happens to all the drives that my data is on. It's just kind of a win-win for uh, me. Yeah, it's a good idea to uh, take a look at their reports before buying a hard drive because, uh, you know, if there's a failure rate in a certain model that's higher, you know, right now than normal, you might want to avoid that one because there might be, I don't know, a bad batch or something came out. Who knows? Yeah. At least you'll know which ones are more reliable. You know, they since they use a lot of hard drives, you know that they know what they're talking about. And we are going to talk about Backblaze a little bit more, but... Um, we should talk about why versioned backups are important. So, ah, um, yes. and the, the thing is about this, there's many reasons why this is important. At the, the, you know, at, at the lowest level, sometimes we make mistakes. We accidentally save over something we didn't intend to, and, and maybe we want to just go back and 
you know, get an earlier copy of that to undo the mistake. I mean, I find myself sometimes going in um, snapshots in TrueNAS to restore something that I thought I wouldn't need, but ended up needing it happens. But that that's one run reason. But then when you have ransomware and all this, all these other forms of malware out there, you know, they're, they're trying to get into your file shares and they're trying to encrypt things. And often ransomware will have things encrypted before it announces itself. It's not going to say your files are encrypted before it actually encrypts your files, unless it's a, a beginner at creating these kinds of things. I didn't think that through very well, but version backups are really important. And I, I tell this story sometimes to kind of tell why this is important. Um, this was earlier in my career. I had a computer repair business. Um, I, I, I stopped doing that a long time ago, but I had a few clients even after I stopped that just insisted that I help them out. Um, and one of them came to me in tears because all of his family photos were encrypted, all of them, no version of backups of any kind. So I remember at the time I, I gave him a copy of all of his files and I'm like, you know, just hang on to these files because someday we might be able to break that encryption. Can't promise anything. Um, but, you know, we, we could keep checking back and, and seeing, but, you know, he didn't think about this kind of thing. And, um, maybe some people don't until it's too late, but if he had version backups, perhaps he could just go back before this happened and restore the files back to their original unencrypted state. Assuming of course that the malware doesn't go after the versions as well, which they kind of do now. And yeah. that leads us to my next point, why you should not have your external backup drives connected all the time. Because if you had version backups and it wasn't within reach of that malware, then it's a lot easier to recover from that. And, um, also, you could have a power surge that could take out external hard drives as well. So there's a lot of reasons why you shouldn't always have them connected. Um, security and stability being two of the biggest ones. And with that said, we're moving right through because we mentioned this already, the offsite backup at a family member's house or a friend's house. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's so cool that people, you know, when people do this, um, it's kind of funny to me to think about the reaction on the other end, where the, if it's a non-technical person, like, well, why do you want to keep your data at my house? Like, isn't your your crazy amount of servers at home good enough? Um, and then you explain, well, if anything happens, it's it's great to have an offsite copy. And, um, you know, that's why some people do that. We'll talk about Backblaze being a, an option for that um, here in a bit. But that's that could be one thing that that helps out a lot of people just especially if it's a family member and they're, they don't want to bill you for this, then it's even better. The only problem being you could kill their bandwidth. If they have a bandwidth limit with their ISP, you should always check that first before you start doing this because you, you could be doing them a disservice if they start getting out of bandwidth errors or a bandwidth bill or something like that. So always be mindful of exactly how much data you're sending there because that's important too. Yes. And someone asked a question in, in the chat. And that's what I had said. I'm using, when I say Backblaze, I am talking about Backblaze and their B2 service, their bucket service that they offer. Um, it's actually, they have their B2 service, but it also is S3 compatible. So if you have a ability to back up to S3, that is another way you can back up. So there's native B2, which is built into a lot of things, or there's S3. S3 is an open standard by Amazon and obviously most popular by Amazon, but other places use it as well for backups mm -hmm. that does include Backblaze. Yep, absolutely. We should probably just get right into Backblaze since it's something that it's hard to talk about home labs and backing up without at least mentioning them and they've already come up. 
So just like you said, B2, it's like a bucket service. It's a it's object storage, not block storage. Block storage being hard drives and things like that. The things that you've always been saving things. The things you're the kind of thing your movies are on. But we all know what we're talking about here with home lab since we have one. But um, object storage may not be as obvious to some people. That's essentially a key value pair with the key value pair being name of object and the actual payload or the object itself. It's not the same as a Linux file system where you have um, you know, actual permissions. It's, there's really no metadata, not, not so much. It's just a bucket to store files into, and that's just how that works. So it's simple. And there's ways of mounting these like they're in external storage to make them act that way. But initially, object storage by itself natively is not like that. It's essentially something where that wants to receive files and then send you back files, almost like it's a, a new age version of FTP in a way. Yeah. And, and it works over more like a standard TLS protocol. Mm -hmm. The other advantage you get is you can set your life cycle and revisioning inside of Backblaze as well when yep. you set up the object storage. So even though it's encrypted, you can still say, hey, keep this many versions. That way, if your data, and we talked about this, like revisions, you can still roll back to a previous revision of it. And one recommendation that I have if you use object storage is to just make sure things aren't being duplicated. It, it's probably unlikely to happen, and I think this bug was fixed, but I ran into a bug with TrueNAS where it's supposed to overwrite mm. something on the other end on, on Backblaze, but it doesn't because it doesn't. It didn't know at the time that it was the same object and that it thought every time is just backing up the same file over and over again. Yes. Um, I'm pretty sure I haven't seen that lately, so I have to assume that it's fixed. But I, it's I have a video where I cover what has to be set where to make that work properly. <laughs> I must have inadvertently did it right then at some point, but, <laughs> but just make sure it's not duplicating things and that it's it's sending what you think it's sending. Just check your bill every now and then. It's the thing about Backblaze is that it, it seems to be a lot cheaper than I thought it should be for as much data that I have up there. I've had yeah. terabytes of data up there. I don't even know how many. And it's, I think my bill is like $40 with terabytes up there. I mean, that's pretty cheap compared to how much. I think like four, five, maybe even six terabytes or something like that I have up there. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, All right. See. So next... We should probably talk about sync thing, which is another thing that we brought up a few times. And, you know, it's not backup, but it can be. Now, imagine right. if you have a, um, let's say, a sync thing server in a cloud instance, and you have a firewall to where only you can access it and your home network can get to it. It's, it is off-site. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, that's not even your data center. That's in the cloud. So you could use it for that, but it's, it's not in and of itself a backup solution it's a syncing solution and it's something that's really important to me because i don't know what computer i'm going to be on from one minute to the next i have a few and i don't want to think about which computer i've saved which file on i just want my documents directory to be my documents directory the same on everything um kind of like we had roaming profiles that was pretty popular but yeah and the windows don't really ask about that as much now although it does come up sometimes roaming profiles being where you have you know a network profile server that serves your home directory or your windows user files same thing is just making sure both ends have the same file so it's kind of the same thing but whether or not it's a backup solution depends on how it's implemented you do have versions in there so you can do versioned um you know versioned files you can go back to previous files 
they recently added that to the UI, which I thought was pretty cool because you had to go, you know, in, into a secret folder. It's a hidden folder, not really secret, but yeah. your previous versions will be in there. Now you can just click on something right in your browser and it just brings up a list. You just click restore right then and there. It makes it pretty easy. Um, we have videos on sync thing, um, but the way I use it that's always worked the best for me is to use the star topology if you could apply topology to a syncing solution. Instead of having like my laptop sync to my desktop that syncs to another laptop, I have everything syncing to my TrueNAS. So every device syncs to only one thing, the TrueNAS device. So if my laptop updates a file, then it gets updated at TrueNAS. And then another computer will see that it was updated on the TrueNAS and then pull that over. So that way I don't, I feel like you have fewer sync conflicts that way if everything is only yes. syncing to one thing. And that just makes the most sense to me. And that's just the way that I do it. And I've never had a problem using it I, that way. So that's how I recommend doing it. And an added bonus with TrueNAS is TrueNAS has snapshots. So if your sync thing files are there <laughs> and you have a snapshot schedule, you have sync thing giving you version backups, but you also have TrueNAS having a snapshot of the entirety of sync thing. So either way, you have two different places you could go to to pull a earlier version of a file or to restore a file. So it's it's like a, a double benefit. Yeah, I do almost the same thing. It's not exactly star. Maybe we'll call it double pulsar because I have two TrueNAS servers, one at my studio and one at my office. Those two TrueNAS studio, uh, the TrueNAS studio and the TrueNAS at my uh, office do talk to each other via sync thing. And then my desktop computer talks to both of those. So in case yeah. either one of them is down, it always has two connections. So it's still kind of star typology because anything connects to those. This allows instant syncing of all my files. But one more thing, someone had asked about, does SyncThing support encryption? Now, the transport layer between any two SyncThing nodes is encrypted, but there's actually a step further they added a few years ago, and I thought this was really cool. If you have a SyncThing node that we, let's say, stick in a cloud somewhere, we put it in a Linode instance. Now, obviously, I don't have control over the back end of Linode. So who knows what could happen? It's in the cloud. It's publicly accessible. But me and Jay would like to share files, and we don't want to have a VPN between each other, but we both can access that node. You can set up what they call a, what I want to refer to it as a blind node. They call it an encrypted node, but it's blind to the data that traverses it, and it's blind to the data that it stores. So me and Jay can synchronize files talking to this intermediary that's hosted in the cloud, but if you were to get a hold of it, you'll find that you can't even understand the directory and structure. It doesn't just encrypt the files, it encrypts their names, and it obfuscates even how the directories are structured to help destroy evidence of metadata, if you will, or create enough entropy so you can't defer easily what the metadata even was, as in the file names or the structure that we're using. So me and Jay can have an entire anything synced between us, a bunch of files, projects we're working on, and if that blind intermediary gets taken over it doesn't have any information because the password that we use to decrypt it is only stored in our local sync things the one on the end there the one in the cloud just handles the encryption back and forth it sees the changes now it does lose the ability to revision because it doesn't understand the revisioning because it doesn't because it's lost it you right. can turn it on actually it just is very you don't know what files are which so you could say hey let's roll back to another version it goes okay 
take this long string and roll it back to the previous version of that long string. We don't know what file. Me and Jay wouldn't even know what file that is unless we know exactly which one we last did. But we can still do the versioning on the local instances that do have encrypted so you can see what they are. I think this is such a neat feature of sync thing. And then you combine that, like you said, with TrueNAS snapshots where you're snapshotting on a regular basis. This allows us to roll back to previous versions. So something terrible happens. I've overwrote a bunch of files or, you know, worst case scenario, someone has gotten a hold of my computer, overwrote my files, and it synced between my two true NASs. I just roll back to a snapshot of which I have 30 days of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly how I use it too. So I, I think that, you know, I've never looked at other solutions since sync thing because it just works. And I, another thing I like about it is it doesn't change much. Now, what's interesting yeah. is they, they're constantly releasing new versions. Like I yes. can't count how often this happens, but it doesn't change much. Even though it's, there's new versions, I think the feature you mentioned and, and the one that I just mentioned are, are two of them, the ability to restore right from the web interface. Yep. I discovered that on accident. But you know the reason why that's surprising is because they don't really add all that much. It, it looks almost identical to the way that it did years ago. So if you want something that's stable, I guess this is more like almost like the Debian of sync utilities at this point. Yeah. Um, it just, it is it just a very works stable product. and it doesn't change. Yeah, it's stable. <laughs> Yeah, so, I need to do an updated video on it because my the best thing about it being stable is you can go a video I did probably, I think, six years ago on Sync Thing. It's still relevant. It just doesn't mention all the features that have been added. But if you looked at the way the UI looks, you're like, oh, wait, that's the way it looks today, six years ago, which I'm 100% fine with. They didn't reinvent the, they added dark mode. I will give them that. Thank you for dark mode. Mm -hmm. So dark mode, I don't think was an option when I did my first Sync Thing video. <laughs> so, I don't know when that came. Yeah, it's another thing I just discovered poking around at the settings. Oh, what does this do? Oh, I don't look at the mode. UI very often. I'm happy it's there that they have dark mode. But honestly, I spent, once Sync Thing is set up and much like yourself, it's kind of a, this is the, the settings done. And I want to mention, you didn't mention this, one of the cool use cases Jay has for Sync Thing is Jay's oh. big into the retro emulators and it syncs all of his save games so he can set down one retro system pick up another and he's got his save game synced and I'm like yes <laughs> yeah exactly and the and the ROMs too because yeah on all the ROMs I'm a big retro gaming collector so I have the physical games and the physical systems but sometimes it's easier to use an emulator than it is to pull a Sega CD out of the closet and, and have all the cables I mean that's still novel but I like the, you know, the emulation side of things because it preserves these things. But what I don't like to do is use one retro gaming system and then use another and forget which one I currently had my, my game on that I was playing. If I want to play Final Fantasy VI, I want that synced through every single device I have. So I have sync thing on the retro systems, syncing the ROMs and the save files. And that leads to another feature. The ROMs share, I, I call it a share, but it's a sync is one way it's server to the end units it, it doesn't sync from the end units back so if i make a change to one of the rom files it's going to be undone because it's a one-way sync i don't make changes on the you know game systems i just put the files on the file server and then it sends files so you could do a one-way sync with sync thing if you yeah. want it to be receive only and only receive changes not send any changes back and and depending on your use case you might have a use for that too it's definitely a granular system. It's one of the reasons me and Jay love it so much because it's supported on many platforms. It's very granular. Uh, it just makes that easy. Matter of fact, if you're wondering how I take care of LogSeq, SyncThing is what handles LogSeq even on my phone. So I yeah. use LogSeq on my phone and uh, SyncThing syncs all the files for it. 
One last use case for sync thing that I think is, that might be clever for some people. If you use app images, which are standalone applications for Linux, you don't have to install them. You don't have to install libraries. You download the blob, the application, double click on it and it runs. So app images are pretty cool. But one thing that's pretty novel with sync thing is to have an applications sync and throw all of your app images in there and then put that on all of your systems and set your path variable to include that directory. And now when you update an app image on one system or even install a new one by just dropping it in the folder, that application is now on every single system instantly. Like, just like that. You, you just drop an application and all of your systems have it. Just And that's it, just another example of the fact that with HomeLab, you could find some clever use cases for things that uh, might not have occurred to everyone at first. Yeah, you can get really innovative with it. I, I'm like I said, it's kind of the heart of a lot of. Anytime I'm going to sync anything new, I just drop sync thing. I modify the config so it just syncs everywhere it's supposed to be. <laughs> I even sync Joplin plugins back when I used that. But let's move off of sync thing though, because this will end up becoming the sync yeah. thing episode. Um, we'll, we'll do separate videos on that as a topic. Yeah, <laughs> we should talk about Nextcloud. So mm. I'm going to give this a quick mention because it's especially not a backup server or a solution, but it like sync thing, it can be, and it, it offers syncing as well. And at first, Nextcloud, the syncing was kind of problematic and not reliable, but it's reliable now. The, I was using it for a while and I switched to sync thing, not because I had a problem with Nextcloud syncing. I just like the way that sync thing does it better. It's a personal preference. That's the only reason. But so the sync syncing is solid in Nextcloud, but it gives you an additional benefit. You can access and edit your files in your browser with the um, Office or the Word, pro or excuse me, the what Office Suite is it again? I forget the name of it, but you can install an Office Suite right there yeah. and edit your files inside your browser. And that might be a benefit that some people might want to have, especially if you have non-technical people that want to use your home lab. It might be easier to give them a bookmark and say, your files are here. You can edit them right in your browser. They don't even have to know anything. Um, but if your next cloud is offsite and is syncing, you could argue that it's technically offsite backup because it's pulling your files in that direction. Uh, I have videos on next cloud that goes into way more detail about it, but I just want to throw a mention there because next cloud is one of those things that we talk about a lot. At its core, it's, it's essentially competing with Google Workspace or whatever Google's calling their business solution um, this particular week. Whatever um, it's called this week. <laughs> yeah, I think it's Google Workspace still. So it's essentially the same thing. You, it, it, you could have a email service right there inside your browser, just like you'd have Gmail as part of that. You could have online document editing inside your browser, a calendar, contact syncing. Uh, Nextcloud could really become a central hub for a large number of things that the average person does in their home lab. So it's definitely worth checking out. So I wanted to put a mention out there for it. It's a great piece of software. Now, another thing I'll mention also quickly is Synology, which is something that we don't talk about as much as TrueNAS, but it, it's also a good solution. And you could install SyncThing in, in other applications. It's a NAS, but well, it's something you can also install your backup utilities on. And I think you're probably going to mention their backup or their, yes. what is it called, their enterprise backup. So they have a few different backup options. And the active backup, you have active backup in case you wanted to backup your Office 365, if you have a business account, you can back up your Gmail, your Google Workspace, as we joked, whatever it's called. 
And you can back up your computers. You can do your Windows systems. Matter of fact, I use the active backup to keep an image. The only Windows computer that's in my uh, regular usage is my um, studio computer that ingests all the media. And it works great with active backup because it will do images of that system. And I've had things break on my studio computer. Once you get, there's a lot of things because I got all the capture cards and everything in there. And occasionally something will go bad. I've used it to roll back things that have gone wrong. <laughs> and it's, it definitely gives me the confidence. I have it actually backing up on action. That action is every time that system gets rebooted, it automatically does the backup. And I turn it off anytime I'm not using it. So it gets backed up all the time. But the active backup uh, is just a really great feature of Synology. And it's kind of a good selling point. Now, for those of you that want to integrate uh, or have, like I do, a Synology and SureNAS, because you can't decide which one you want because they're not exactly feature parity. There's advantages and disadvantages to both. You can synchronize the data between them using rsync. And I do have a video you'll find if you type in Synology rsync or even SureNAS rsync, you'll land on the video where I talk about how to synchronize the two of them so you can get the data from one to the other using rsync. Yeah, I need to look into that because that's something I need to set up my, myself. I figured that'd be something good to do. And I was going to ask if there's a newer solution because I could never get the built-in GUI version of rsync to work on TrueNAS with Synology. I always had to go on the command line and write a bash script for it. Not that I mind because I'm, I'm, I like that kind of yeah. thing. But uh, I just feel like there should be like an easier way to send there's, data they from Finally, I've made it easier. They, 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 you know, with with TrueNAS scale, um, if you use the rsync plugin in the, in the TrueNAS scale app, that's made it a lot easier. And you can combine that with uh, hyper backup and rsync. So now you don't have to do the command line to make these things talk to each other. The downside is, of course, there's not a lot of security between them. Uh, when you do it this way, they're just passing open rsync back and forth. So you, SSH, if you encapsulate an SSH, you're going to have better security. So that's still an option to do. But if you have a storage network where these two devices are talking, you're fine with that. That's a way you can handle it. I think another issue for me is whether or not, um, you know, the turnkey version would be as extensive as my bash script, because I, I always go into detail. I don't probably don't need yeah. to. But what the way I have my rsync backup script set up, is that they anytime they run, they create a new folder that's named the date. It's just you know 2024-01- whatever the date is. And every time it runs, it creates a new folder for that day because it runs every day. And any file that gets replaced when it syncs the most recent snapshot of everything, any replaced files go into the date folder. And because they're in a folder named by the date, then tomorrow I don't have to worry about overwritten files overwriting the previous overwritten files because it's going to have a different folder with a different date. So if I want to pull a different file, I just go to the dated folder that I think has that file around the time I replaced it, and then I'll go grab a backup copy of it. And I don't technically need to do that because I have TrueNAS that has snapshots <laughs> of things. I have Sync thing that's you know has versions of things. But I have rsync doing the same thing, but it's kind of like, I have the script. I may as well use it. So I might check that out to see how it compares nowadays. I think it's been at least a year since I last looked into the turnkey method for that. Yeah. Um, before we go jump to the next topic, there's two yeah. questions I do want to answer. One, tape backups. Are they a good backup medium? Or are they too expensive for the home lab? I think that's kind of a personal preference. I'm not a big fan of tape backups unless they're absolutely necessary. I prefer to keep all my data available and spinning uh, with the exception of I do have a extra Synology 
two bay, I think the DS218 with a couple large drives just in a single mirror. I plug it in, I synchronize things, I physically unplug it, like power it off. Uh, but I, I just prefer things on disk because I feel like it's easier to validate the integrity and things like that versus tape. I tapes are pretty reliable. They're not bad, but I always fear like if I had tapes, I'd have to do two tapes for each one because what if I'm pulling a tape and it says, cannot read this tape. I mean, years ago, I've had this. We used to do tape backups a long time. I was so happy when I didn't have literally a giant pile of tapes anymore. <laughs> so um, I feel like it's going backwards, but I get it. If you can't afford the spinning drives and you're like, hey, the, the price and data density of these seems reasonable, it may be an option. The second one is going to be the myth of immutable. We'll call it the myth. Immutable backups, that is something people want, but it's only as immutable as access to that control plane is. So if you have access to that control plane, you can say the backups are immutable when I have a share that is shared out via SMB to some Windows machine. And I've stored data on there. And then that Windows user, there's snapshots on there, but the Windows user decides to delete them. The Windows user cannot delete those snapshots because they're immutable but they're not if someone gets a hold of the TrueNAS itself. There's no way to make data not deletable. It only is not deletable up until someone gets access to whatever the control plane that that data is on. So if you have the username and password to your TrueNAS server, that is going to be the accessible thing. This actually is something we worked with a client for that had a ransomware event and they did not get their TrueNAS servers the first time they got ransomed. They got ransomed a second time and, uh, because they didn't listen to our advice. But what they had not done was roll their passwords off their TrueNAS servers. They were able to delete things. They were able to recover from the snapshots, and they thought it was great. I said, roll those passwords. They they were assuring me they had got the threat actor out on the consulting. I said, I don't think you have. I would roll the passwords. And yeah, yeah. that um, they ended up getting that. So your immutability is only as good as the access to the control plane can be restricted. So that's why there's right. not really a, there's not really a big talk about immutable homeland backups. But you can set retention policies in something like Backblaze and say don't allow this to be deleted for so many days. But then if I get the master password account to your Backblaze, it can be deleted and obviously someone at Backblaze could delete it. Something could happen at Backblaze to cause it to be deleted. So nothing's really immutable in the tech world as much as we'd like it to be. I hate that term when I see it. Yeah. That's a requirement on insurance forms. This is this is a discussion I've had too much. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to explain these things to the people that don't know about them. One comment I'll make about tape is that um, I think I'm con conditioned to hate it or to have bias at no fault of tape. Okay. I, I right. want to be clear. I'm not about to find actual fault with tape, but as a kid, I would have situations where a VHS movie would get eaten by the VCR. And when that oh, happens, that sucked. I, I sat down for a movie with popcorn and now the tape's ruined. And that happens so many times. That's the first thing I think of when I think of a tape, you know, like those, I'm not saying that's as likely to happen or anything, but you know, it, it does kind of worry me a bit. But one good thing I'll say about tape is it has a long shelf life for data. Like everything you store data on, and I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole in this episode because it's an episode of and by itself when you talk about data retention and shelf life. Archival you know, media. <laughs> exactly. Because, you know, I remember a long time ago, like years ago when burning DVDs was popular, somebody would say, oh, I'm, I'm good. I backed up my hard drive on DVDs. And I'm like, well, how long ago did you back it up. Um, oh, it's just, uh, they'll give me the time period. I'm like, you do understand that on average, uh, it start, 
you know, CDRs and DVDRs start losing data after like, I think 18 months. Well, but people didn't realize media that. they're sort on. Yes. <laughs> well, even, but see all the interesting thing about optical media is all of it is starting to show fault. Now we have, we thought factory CDs would be like permanently protected from disc rot, which is what this is called. But we're starting to see early generation, you know, CD games like Sega CD, like back when CD games were yeah. like first coming out. We're, we thought that wouldn't happen. We're starting to see disc rot on those old discs. So everything has disc rot, even like spinning rust hard drives lose magnetism after about a year of being on your shelf. So my so I'll stop this rabbit hole right now, and I, I say all of that to say this. Just, just look into it. Don't go down a rabbit hole, but understand the basics and, and look at this about the shelf life of your data because it might surprise you just how little time you might have with something's just sitting on the shelf. So that's You're always, always something to keep in mind. And you're always fighting against entropy with these. This is the, the yep. reality of it. The CD burnables that you have, they actually use a die versus the stamping methods that are used mm -hmm. on, like he said, a Sega CD. But there are some life expectancy issues on any media. The charge you put into a little SSD starts fading the moment you're done charging it. If it does not get done again, it does fade over time. Just like the magnetism yep. is not some absolute permanent, it will fade over time. This is why there's so much error correcting on any of these drives. It's a fun rabbit hole to go down. It'll make you nervous about it. This is why when I say I keep my data spinning, it is on mm -hmm. ZFS. It is on these constantly being integrity checked in there. And just completely reminds me and has me paranoid. I'm, as I glance over, I was thinking about a DVD. I was like, I still have it in a drawer, a 20-year-old DVD that I've been meaning to copy. Just I think I have a copy of it. I wanted to double check because I want to start getting rid of some of my old DVD media. Uh, it makes, but I want, before I do so, I want to make sure I've got a copy of all of it somewhere. And I, that, that sounds like a lot until you realize how small files were back then. <laughs> and this is literally why I have personally made ISO images of all of my DOS games, like Mortal Kombat yeah. 3, SimCity 2000, uh, you name it. I have an ISO image of all of these because I know at some point I'm not going to be able to play those games directly off the CD anymore, but you know, that's not really an issue. Uh, don't copy that floppy, but apparently I am. So yep. here we are. Exactly. I wanted to just have a couple quick mentions, just honorable mentions real quick. Um, so the episode, we have a lot to talk about today. I wanted to mention LVM snapshots, mainly just to make oh, sure right. everybody knows that this exists because I found this out late in my career. No one talked about LVM snapshots. I mean, we talked about LVM constantly, like, why it's a good thing to have, you know, you could online resize, things like that. You could add another drive to it and, you know, expand over that drive. There's a lot of good benefits there, but no one really talked about LVM snapshots in the career that I've seen. And I want to make sure people know that it exists. You can literally take a snapshot if you run on LVM, make a change, maybe install a piece of software, try it out, and maybe you hate it and you want to go back. You can uninstall it or you just revert the snapshot and it's like you never installed it. And that'll make sure you don't have cruft all over your hard drive too. But LVM snapshots are not the easiest method. I know that doesn't scare us. We're home lab people. If I say it's difficult, someone's like, that sounds great. Like, that sounds fun. I'm going to learn that um, and get mastery over it. But LVM snapshots are not something you can just let go. Like, if you take a snapshot, it will eventually fill up your hard drive. It takes a long time. But the idea is you have the snapshot for as long as you need it, then you remove it. Always remove your LVM snapshots and use them only as long as you need them. And sure, it could take months for it fills up your hard drive. But if you leave a snap snapshot dangling there and you're not, you know, 
watching it, then you could find out you have no hard drive space left. So just keep an eye on that. And I just mention it just so people know that it does exist. You could look into it and see if this is a solution that might be a part of your backup scheme. Yeah. Uh, oh, note, I believe Jay has an entire video on LVM. Do you not? Or maybe even a series on it? Head over to I have, I have a one big, massive video that covers uh, all of LVM. You know, pretty much, yeah, all of LVM. And even my new Arch Linux video that I just put out, uh, which I've refreshed just, just like this week, tells you how to install Arch Linux on LVM, both the easy way and the manual way. So if you want to get up and running in LVM, I, I have it covered for sure. Um, the last honorable mention that I'll mention is the Proxmox backup server, which is another option. And yes, I do have a video on that too. If you want to learn how that works, there's also a video for that. But that's definitely something to consider, especially if you have a spare server lying around and you want to find a purpose for it. Maybe setting up Proxmox backup server could be a good use case. Yep. And you don't have to just back up Proxmox with it, by the way. You could back up your files too. Uh, you could back up your Proxmox VMs but also your files. I just want to make that clear in case someone might think it's Proxmox only, not necessarily. I think that's what we learned before when we talked about that was the Proxmox backup server supporting more than just Proxmox, yep. which I thought was cool. Yep, so it's all in the video. And and I, I guess now I've given everyone several weekend projects. So uh, you could tell your significant other in advance, I'm very sorry, just blame me and it, it'll be fine. Just get your dive into this. One last thing, untested backups are just wishful thinking. So if anything else, remember that, you know, because nobody cares about a backup that works. Everybody cares about a restore that works. This is what you really want to focus on is test any of the solutions we talked about or any scenarios, validate them. That is how you yep. know it's working. So absolutely. That's true. <laughs> All right. And with that, we're out of here. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we have an upcoming interview with the folks at NetData. We're getting that scheduled. Uh mm -hmm. That look for that. That's coming out. That's I'm excited about that. And oh, you have another series on your channel you released. Let's make sure you get that right. Yeah, I think I was referring to the Arch Linux video that I just put. Okay, out you have an Arch Linux video. Yeah, Check it's out. In the note. Yeah, it, it, it's like a it's a it's a, I think nearly an hour long. Like it goes into in depth both methods of installing Arch Linux, and it's not brand new because I've had this video on the channel before. But since it's a rolling release. Every now and then I just um, make a new updated video. version of it. Yep, so if you want exactly. a deep dive into Arch, Jay's got you covered on that. Check that video yep. out. I, I, it's the one you're wearing a shirt. And doesn't your shirt say something on it? Something like Arch. I run Arch, by the way. Yeah, I, I, I regret not having that shirt in the video because I thought I almost thought about re-recording the on-camera moments. But I didn't want to <laughs> just uh, flaunt that or make that meme too much because I wanted people to really realize this is a serious tutorial, but I figured I would have fun with a thumbnail. I don't normally do this, but I figured, you know, why not? I'll just throw a thumbnail out there and see uh, if it makes people look at it cross-eyed or something. What is he doing? Yeah. Yep. I run Arch, yep. by the way. Run Arch, by the way. Thank you, everyone, for joining this live stream and listen to our podcast, and we'll see you next week. Later. See ya.